The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, this morning, as you can tell, I'm a little under the weather, so this may go a little slow. I may need a little water. We'll get to the end. If you're having a hard time with my volume, there's devices in the back to help with that. There's also a few copies of my manuscript so that you can just read it and read, read along with me. But I trust by the grace of the Lord and the medicine with which he has blessed me, we will get to the end. Though there may be at times if I get excited, I may sound like a gecko pretending to be Godzilla. But we're going to get there. You know, I would also say on the front end, like you have a text like this that presents challenges of its own. Um, 
because it's one that's just so familiar to so many of us. We're, we're very familiar with this text, and it's probably one that's near and dear to many of our hearts. And y'all know the way that we generally preach an Old Testament text. We explain the meaning of it and all its parts and what's going on. We then bring it to the end, and we show how it's pointing to Jesus, and then we apply it through the lens of the gospel. We're, we're used to that pattern, and I'm not going to deviate from that too much today. But with a text like this, you're looking at it going, okay, I see Jesus there, and I see Jesus there, and I see Jesus there. And if you're doing that, then praise the Lord, that's wonderful. Do that. Begin making those connections in your mind as we go along uh, with a text that is near and dear to many of our hearts. Now, on the front end, I want to say this. That it's, normal, it's normal for us to see someone try to go above and beyond to rectify a wrongdoing, to satisfy guilt when they've done somebody wrong. Think about a husband with his wife. If he has done something to offend his wife and he, he recognizes his, his ill uh, works, his, the things that he's done wrong, he's going to come to her and he's going to say, I'm sorry. And he's going to own up to it and then he's going to hear those words. And men, you know those words. It's fine. It's not fine. And we know that. And so what's the husband to do? Well, he's going to try to find ways to atone for his guilt. He's going to go out and buy flowers. He's going to clean the dishes. He's going to make dinner. He's going to try to find some way to atone for his wrongdoing. Children, they do it. You come to a child. You correct them. What do they do? They come running up to you to give you a hug. They walk away and randomly say, well, I love you. Maybe they go clean something up. They make you a card. They write you a letter. They do something because they're trying to satisfy that guilty conscience. An employee who gets corrected by his supervisor is going to show up to work early the next day. He's going to work late. He's going to take on extra work. People donate their time. They donate money. Do all sorts of things to make sure that our guilt is recognized, that people know that we understand, hey, we are guilty, and that we are doing what it takes to atone for it. But what happens when the offended party is God, the one who created you, the one who formed the mountains and ordered the seas, who put the stars in the sky and put the sun where it was supposed to be and the moon where it was supposed to be, who took nothing and made everything, who ordered chaos, who is holy, who is glorious, who is mighty, who is just, who alone is worthy of honor and praise. What happens when the, he is the one who is the, guilt, uh, the offended party? When we're guilty of offending him, when flowers and hugs and colored pictures won't do the trick to make up for our offenses? Well, the text that we have before us gives us the answer. We don't do anything. He is the one who acts. He provides a righteous servant who takes on the sins of his people, who atones for their evil by offering up himself to take away their guilt. So through this text, what I want to do this morning is pose a question that the text answers. I'm going to give you the answer and then explain how I got the answer. These things will be on the screen behind me. 
So the first question is this. Who is the servant? Answer, the Davidic king who is exalted for serving as the Lord's instrument of salvation through his own suffering. Now, we see immediately that this servant is wise. And the reward for his wisdom is exaltation. You see that in 52.13. There's a threefold telling of how he is exalted. He will be high, he will be lifted up, and he would be exalted. Now, it's important for us to put these terms within Isaiah's own context because he's used all of them throughout the book. Uh, the phrase high and lifted up, it happens three times here, obviously, uh, and two more. The first is in Isaiah 6, a, a text that you're probably familiar with. If not, that's where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord, and it says that he sees this vision of the Lord who is high and lifted up. In just a couple of chapters in Isaiah 57, again, the term high and lifted up is going to be used and applied exclusively to God. He is the one who is high and lifted up. It's the same with exalted all throughout the letter. Um, here is one exception. The only other exception is where the Lord is talking about the exalted places that he's going to tear down. Everywhere else, um, the Lord is declaring, I will be exalted. In fact, that's a theme that's heavy all throughout the book of Isaiah, that through judgment of sin, that through salvation of his people, the Lord would be revealed. It would be shown that he alone is God, that he alone is worthy of praise, that he alone is worthy of glory, and that he would have it. It says, uh, he does not share his glory with another, he says. In the book. And so all throughout Isaiah, ex, uh, being exalted is applied to God alone. But here, in both instances, what has been exclusive to God is now applied to his servant. And if you hear that, and you're maybe hearing whispers of the incarnation, I think you're right. I think you're right to start making that connection. But at the same time, I think that Isaiah is probably writing above his head. I'm not convinced that that's what Isaiah here is the argument that he's making. Instead, the, the emphasis that Isaiah is making is on just how incredible the exaltation would be uh, of this servant. Now, the path to the exaltation of the servant is surprising. He would be exalted through suffering. Now, Isaiah captures the servant's suffering in a few different ways, different ways that he talks about it. In verse 14, he talks about the many uh, as being astonished. And now the, the connotation there is one of fear. I mean, you look and it, you see what, how it describes what would happen to him. His body mangled to the point where his humanity would almost be unrecognizable. And so the connotation of astonishment here is one of, like, fear. They're looking on him, having had the judgment of God fallen upon him, and they are fearful. They're recoiling in fear at what they are seeing. In light of this, Isaiah says in verse 1 through a question that the exaltation of the servant uh, is unbelievable to many. In light of the things that happen to him, it is unbelievable that this is the one who would end up exalted. And he touches on that in a few different ways. 
throughout the first three verses of chapter 53. First, it says because mankind has no regard for him, because he was not impressive, because he was nothing special, there was nothing appealing about him. He doesn't scream. This doesn't scream as one who would end up as exalted. Second, because he was a man of sorrows and griefs. Again, you know, we hear that and we hear, oh, so he was a man who was very sad. Well, the connotation is a little bit stronger than that. The idea of sorrows is more like pain, especially suffering in uh, bondage, that type of pain. Griefs are then more like sickness, like disease. And then third, we see the surprising nature of this servant's exaltation uh, is because he was rejected by mankind. Mankind hated him. Mankind abandoned him. They turned their face from him. And yet, Isaiah would have us believe that this servant would be honored in a way that has been reserved for God alone. We, like the many in the text, should be asking the question, why? Why was this one exalted? This one, nothing about him screams exaltation. And yet the text tells us he was exalted because by acting wisely, he would bring about God's promised redemption of both Israel and the nations. I want you to look again at verse 1, the second part of that, where Isaiah asks another question. And he says, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the arm of the Lord is a reference to the Lord's strength, to his might, his being all-powerful, but particularly within the context of salvation and judgment. See, our text comes within the broader context of Isaiah 51 and following, but let's look particularly at Isaiah 52, 10 through 12. There it says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purifying yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So this is all within the context of the Lord bringing his people out of exile in Babylon and bringing them back. But it's using language that here is, is very similar to the language that is used of the Exodus. You see in verse 11, depart, depart, go out, come out from there. Verse 12, for you shall not go out in haste. That's a reversal of when the Israelites came out of Egypt. They were told to go out in haste. Here they do not go out in haste. But the language is very similar. You see also, the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. Again, language hearkening back to the Exodus where the Lord went before them and behind them as pillar of cloud and pillar 
of fire. And so what we have here is the promise, and it's, the prophets are replete with this promise, the promise of a new exodus. And so in verse 10, where it's describing how the Lord will bear his arm, it's referring to the strength and the might, his strength, his might, that's going to be put on display when the Lord brings his people out of exile. The servant, then, coming back to our text, is the one through whom this new exodus would be accomplished. But he would accomplish it not by might, but by suffering. He would deliver the people through his own trials. But he would do more than just deliver. He would also purify. You see that there in chapter 52, verse 15. He would sprinkle the nations. So this has priestly implications. Priests would take the blood of the sacrifices that were made, uh, first in the tabernacle, ultimately in the temple, and they would sprinkle the blood on persons, they would sprinkle it on objects, so as to set them apart as holy, uh, and to purify them, to declare them cleansed. But here it's the nations that are purified. Well, this fits within the context of what Isaiah has already said in the book about the servant. Uh, consider Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. It says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So here the servant brings salvation to the ends of the earth by gathering Israel, by gathering Jacob, by gathering the nations and bringing them to the Lord. He's referred to as a light, meaning he is the bringer of truth to the world. This echoes another uh, servant passage, Isaiah 42, where he brings justice to the nations. He opens the eyes of the blind to truth. He brings out those who are imprisoned in darkness uh, and brings them into the light. So the servant suffers in order to purify the nations. The result is that kings are in awe of him. And they are in awe of the work that the Lord has done through him. And says that they are able to see and understand. Which again, has incredible connotations within the context of Isaiah. If you remember Isaiah's call in chapter 6, when he says, I will go, the Lord says, I will send you. But what does he send him to do? To shut eyes and to stop ears that people would not see and would not understand. But now through his servant, he's undoing what he had promised to do through Isaiah. And so we have a servant who is going to be exalted for suffering in order to provide salvation for many. And yet there's one more stone that Isaiah gives us to uncover 
as we seek to identify who does Isaiah understand this servant to be. Look again at verse 2. There he quotes from Isaiah 11.1, or uses language very similar to Isaiah 11.1, where he says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David. Ergo, he's talking about the Davidic line. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Well, Isaiah 11.1 then goes on and describes what this offspring from David's line was going to do. It says that the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him, and he would bring justice and righteousness. An Edenic-like peace would fall on creation under his reign. The earth would be full of the knowledge of the Lord. He, the Davidic king, will bear the rod, exercising authority and judging the wicked. It says that the nations would inquire of him, and the scattered of Israel would be gathered together, again, in hinting at, speaking of a new exodus, and that this individual, this Davidic king, this shoot from the stump of Jesse, his resting place would be glorious. So Isaiah is pointing to the servant as the Davidic king through whom the Lord will bring salvation to the earth. But the servant would not do it through incredible strength, not by wooing or winning many to him. He would do it through suffering, incredible suffering. And this idea is completely foreign to the world in which we live. Those who get ahead are the strong and the mighty. The ones who never let weakness show. Who work harder than everybody else. Who look like a magazine model. Who have a quick tongue. Who always have a ready response. See, the, the world around us screams, exaltation cannot come through suffering. And unfortunately, because of our weak flesh... We can latch on to that idea too. We have a hard time with that ourselves. This is why we're often so quick to get back at those who wrong us. We spread gossip. We give mean looks. We use sharp words because we too have a hard time recognizing or, or coming to terms with a, a worldview in which exaltation can come through suffering. That's not how you get ahead. You get ahead by strength. But that's not how things work in the kingdom of God. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The servant exemplifies this. And so we have a servant who is exalted for obediently suffering to supply salvation for his people. Which brings us to the second question. How does the servant provide salvation? <coughs> the answer, he willingly atoned for the guilt of his people by paying the penalty for their sin by dying as their substitute. And we saw in verse 3 that the servant is a man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. 
We said those were pains and sickness. But now we learn in verse 4 that those sorrows and those griefs, those pains and those sicknesses were not his own. The sicknesses that he bore belonged to his people. Once more, Isaiah is connecting dots from earlier in the book. In Isaiah 1-4, the Lord, speaking to Judah, he calls them a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. And then he uses sickness to describe their sinful condition. They are sick with sin. They are ate up with it. In the next two verses, Isaiah 1, 5, and 6, he says, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. And so this takes the sorrows and the griefs of verses 3 and 4, and it, and it puts them in its proper light, the way that we're meant to understand them. The bondage-like pains are bondage to sin. The people's sin is like a disease that has taken the whole body captive. Their servant, the servant, is not acquainted with these, or is acquainted with these, not because they are his, not because they belong to him, but because he took on himself the sinfulness of the people that he would redeem. This answers a question that's been kind of hanging out there since very early in Isaiah. Uh, the Lord condemned his people for their sinfulness, and yet over and over he makes promises not just to forgive them, but to actually purify them, to set them apart as holy to himself, to declare them righteous, to purge them of all their iniquities. Isaiah 1.18, he promised to make their sins white as snow. Isaiah 43.25, he would blot out their transgressions and remember them no more. But how? How would the Lord do this? How would the Lord cleanse a people who are ate up with sin of their sin sickness and set them free from its power? Well, this would come through judgment, but not the exile. While they were exiled for their wickedness, and while the wicked in Israel were crushed under the judgment of God at that time, the exile could not cleanse their sin-sick hearts. The judgment that came careening down like a waterfall upon the servant of the Lord was what would accomplish that. His servant would bear the sins of his people in order to purify them. So we see this in verses 5 and 6. It's got this nice rhythmic back and forth, kind of like a tennis match back-and-forth fashion. Look at what it says. It says, The servant is pierced for his people's transgressions. That is, their law-breaking, specifically breaking the law of God, and he's pierced for it. It's the servant who is crushed for the people's iniquities. That is, their wicked immorality. 
falls on his head. The judgment for it falls on his head. The servant was chastised in order that his people could have peace with God. They were the rebels. They were the enemies. They were the ones who refused to honor God as holy, to hold him out before the nations and say, this is the one true God worthy of your worship. And yet he received their correction. The servant was wounded so that his people could be healed of their sin sickness. It healed through the blood that he would pour out. The servant acted wisely while the people had done what was right in their own eyes. And yet Yahweh laid on him every single bit of their wickedness. He bore it all. Remembering last week, he drank the cup. Now the last part of verse 9, it's so important that we grasp that so that we properly understand what is happening through 4 through 9. We're told there that the servant has no guilt. There is no penalty that he owes. There's no reason for him to die. The people are the guilty ones. The people deserve death. And yet he bears their judgment by substituting himself in their place to atone for their guilt. So the name for this is penal substitutionary atonement, which sounds like the fancy word that people who go to seminary, you know, could say, hey, look, I go to seminary, I know these words. But it's a wonderful, glorious, beautiful doctrine that you need to bury in the deepest recesses of your mind, and you need to draw it out every single day and glory in the kindness of God to you because of what it's getting at. It's really pretty straightforward. A substitute is offered to atone for the guilt incurred by another by paying the penalty required for their guilt. The servant substitutes himself in the place of his people to atone for their guilt by bearing the full penalty that their sins deserved. But this maybe makes you uncomfortable. Because we live in a day and time where, no, each one should have to answer for themselves. I don't want to answer for somebody else. That's not fair. So how is that, how is that fair? How is God's economy fair there? We struggle with this because we want to be the ones who pull up our own bootstraps, who come before God and say, look what I have done. I atone for myself. I don't need somebody else. I'm not weak. I'm strong. I'm mighty. But you need to understand something. If you reject this doctrine, you are rejecting the very core of the gospel. You know, breaking the preaching fourth wall here, as I'm reading through this, Many of us are already going, that's Christ. We know that. Yes, Jesus is the servant of God who takes on his people's sins in order to offer up his own life as the substitute that atones for our guilt. 
The penalty that our sins deserve is judgment, death under the wrath of God, and eternal suffering in hell under His wrath. Jesus took every ounce of it when He died in our place as our substitute on the cross. And yet there are many who will reject Christianity precisely for this reason. They cannot accept penal substitutionary atonement because they call it divine child abuse. The Father taking out His anger against us by abusing His child on the cross. But this text itself shows that that argument does not hold water. Look at what the servant does. The servant is not unwilling. The servant is not misused or abused by an angry God. He acts wisely. He goes to his death as a willing sacrifice, a willing participant, without, we see there in verse 7, without protest, without complaint, without arguing, without talking back, without fighting back. He simply submits to the will of God. See that in verse 7. Though oppressed, though led to slaughter, he does not open his mouth. And yet we read that those in his day were completely clueless. Isaiah emphasizes the servant's death by saying he was cut off. He was removed. He was taken out of the land of the living, stricken for his people's sins. And they didn't know. But that leaves us with a final question. We're still wondering... If his people didn't recognize it, how's he going to be exalted? Where does this exaltation come from? Why on earth would he do this for a thankless people? It's question three. Why did the servant die for his people? The answer, to please the Lord by accomplishing the Lord's will through giving himself as the offering for the guilt of his people. See, read there that the servant's soul, his life, was given up as the offering for their guilt. The, the guilt offering was prescribed in the law. It was compensation that was given in order to deal appropriately with sin. And so what we have is the servant's soul, his life, becoming the permanent the final guilt offering in order to compensate for his people's sins. He took it all on himself as if it were his own so that it would no longer be counted against them. And in this, the Lord's will is accomplished. We see that in verse 10, where we read, Yet it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The servant crushed by God in order to purify a people for God. But this isn't the end of the line for the servant, not by a long shot. We read on, we see that he shall see his offspring 
he shall prolong his days. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. These are blessings for someone who is living, not someone who is dead. The servant's resurrection is clearly, heavily implied. And so where we end is we have verses 10 through 12 of chapter 52 are actually bookended by verses, uh, or 10 through 12 here is bookending Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. Here we see the promised, the fulfillment of the promised exaltation for the servant that came through his suffering. Verse 12 uses similar language to the spoils that a king would receive from victory in battle. The righteous servant receives them, and then as the Davidic king, he shares the spoils of his victory with those that he's redeemed by his suffering. His days are prolonged. He comes through anguish to satisfaction. He suffers for the sake of joy. This, this is the reward for his suffering in the place of his people. You notice the therefore at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, because he has made the many to be accounted righteous, he receives the spoils of a conquering king because he suffered for his people according to the will of God, to satisfy the will of God, to please God by making a people righteous to God. We see this in verse 11. He bears the wickedness of the many, because they could be accounted righteous. He pours out his soul to death, being counted with the transgressors, bearing the sins of many in order to make intercession for them. He is their righteousness before God. And in his death, the Lord is pleased. Because in him the Lord's promises to cleanse a people for himself, to remove all of their unrighteousness, is now fulfilled. God is exalted through the servant's suffering. I feel like we could spend weeks in these verses, pointing to all of the many ways that Jesus is revealed in the New Testament as the suffering servant who atones for our guilt. We, by the Lord's good providence, we read one of those verses earlier in the service. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where we see Jesus exalted to the glory of God the Father because he willingly submitted himself to suffering, even to the point of death on the cross, according to the will of the Father. I give you five more texts that point us to Christ as the fulfillment of the suffering servant. Jesus is the one, in Matthew 1.21, who comes into the world to take away the sins of his people. That text reads, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Peter 2.22-25, actually directly citing Isaiah 53.5 and 6, 
here we see Jesus, the guiltless one, who died as the willing sacrifice in order to take away our sin sickness. He gathers the straying sheep. He did not open his mouth. He submitted himself to the one who would vindicate him as righteous. That text reads, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Hebrews 12, verse 2, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not go to the cross begrudgingly. He was not abused by a cruel and angry father. He suffered in the place of his people for joy. His joy was the exaltation that he received and all the eternal ramifications of that for the people that he redeemed through the shedding of his own blood. Our eternal good, his exaltation, and his joy all come together at the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the righteous sufferer who suffers in the place of sinners so that His people can be counted as righteous. Lastly, Christian, Jesus is the guilt offering that took away your guilt when he gave himself as a sacrifice pleasing to the Father. Ephesians 5.2 Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Therefore, what does this mean for us? You're now free to worship and serve the Lord with joy. You don't have to come before God like we might come to an offended spouse with flowers, cleaned dishes, or a child with a drawing and a hug. Because all your guilt was taken away at the cross. You cannot atone for it. You cannot take it away. Christ took every drop of it away when he died in the place of his people on the cross. But we try anyways. We respond to our sins by promising, God, I promise I'll do better next time. We take our suffering and we think about our suffering through the lens of the wrath of God. I'm suffering because God is mad at me. There must be some guilt in my life. Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. And clearly, I have to pay God back so that he will redeem me from this suffering. And so we do things like we recommit ourselves. I will pray more. I will read my Bible more. I will be at church more. I'm going to read the, the good books, the ones my pastors tell me to read that have the little nine marks thing on it. I'm not going to spend my time, you know, 
blowing it on the, on the internet. I'm going to listen to good podcasts, things that build me up, that edify me. I'm going to put up guardrails. I'm going to put up safety nets. They're going to catch me when I'm trending towards sin. I'm going to give more money. I'm going to give more time. I'm going to do all of these things so that God knows I'm serious. I know I'm guilty, and, and, and I'm sorry, and I'm going to atone for it. Now, obviously, none of the things that I just mentioned are bad things in and of themselves. And depending on the situation, they may actually be proper responses to our sins. They may be the fruit that is part of our repentance. That may be the case. But where they become a problem is when they are attempts to pay God back, to appease Him, when we're holding these things out to the Lord and saying, look, look, I'm trying. I promise I'll do better next time. Please don't hold my guilt against me. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's why you're in this room right now. Because you're hoping that by your attendance, by your singing, by your prayers, that God will finally be pleased with you, that God will finally take your guilt away and he won't hold it against you any longer. Well, if you're here and a Christian, hear me, you no longer bear any guilt for your many, many sins. You do not have to try to atone, to satisfy God's wrath through atoning for your own guilt. You can't do it anyways, no matter how hard you try. Jesus bore all your guilt for every single one of your sins. He bore it to the cross. He pleased his Father by becoming the offering that has purified you. There is Therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's true, yes, we commit sins in the here and the now. But your guilt isn't dealt with in the here, in the now. Jesus doesn't climb back up on the cross to die all over again every time you sin. Christ dealt with every bit of your guilt for your sins when he died for it. 2,000 years ago. He bore it all when he gave himself up for you as the substitute who atones for your guilt. And because he did, we can now live lives of worship and service to the Lord that are filled with joy and delight because we're not trying to satisfy a guilty conscience. You can come here and you can sing, and sing loudly, and study the Bible, and pray in response to God for his mighty deeds to pardon your guilt, who has purified us through his Son, who loved us and gave himself up for us. We can do the things that he says in his word, like putting away sins of various kinds, like evangelism, offering patience and mercy to others, sacrificial giving, serving in a variety of ways. We can offer this all as joyful acts of praise, filled with delight because our Father crushed His own Son in order to take away our guilt and to give us life. We can confess our sins in confidence, not as an act of restitution, 
not hoping that we get all the words right so that he actually is happy with our prayer. We can confess them in faith, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive all who confess their sins, and we can do so with joy, knowing why? All of our guilt for all of our sins has been dealt with in the death of Jesus. These are the fruits of Christ's righteousness that was credited to you when he took away your guilt. We now live lives, our whole lives, not begrudgingly, not fearfully, not racked with guilt, but with delight, because we don't bear any more guilt before the Father. So Christian, let me ask you again, is your conscience burdened with guilt? Rest in Jesus. He bore it all. He bore it all when he gave himself up for you as a, as a fragrant offering to please the Father. But to those of you who are not trusting Jesus for salvation, understand the reality of what been pointed to in this text, you still bear all of your guilt before the Lord. There's not going to be profuse apologies on that day when he is revealed and you stand before him. That won't be enough. You won't be able to hold out to him and say, I know, but look at all the things that I did. Doesn't this balance out? That won't satisfy. Maybe you're in the place, just simply you're burdened, you're guilty, and you have no outlet for it. You don't know what to do with it, and it is eating you alive. God is gracious and patient. He receives all who come to him, confessing their sins and trusting in Jesus for their righteousness. So please, friend, Come to Jesus and receive grace for your guilt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not counting our guilt against us. Thank you for putting forward your Son as the guilt offering for our sins. We confess that if it were up to us, we could never make up for all the ways that we fail to worship and serve you. But you, in your grace, have saved a people for yourself in Christ. And so help us, Lord, to rest in his saving work. Help us to see the ways in which uh, we are not worshiping and serving you as you deserve, not worshiping and serving you with joy and delight, but instead out of guilt. Help us to remember that we cannot do this, but that Christ did it for us so that we would praise him to your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.